Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor as well as the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News in lovely Denver, Colorado, Jason Luber. If you would like to contact me, you sure can on any of the contact links in the description of the show. And I would appreciate you rating, rinsing, repeating, whatever. You know, Give me a rating on the thing and it would help me out. Uh, you can always call the listener hotline as well. And that number is 303-832-0217. Well, what do you think about the cul-de-sac, the suburban turnaround to nowhere? Well, I was reading an article recently, and it was titled Road to Nowhere, Why the Urban Cul-de-Sac is an Urban Planning Dead End. It was written by Timothy Welch, who is a senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Auckland. And Dr. Welsh also specializes in transportation infrastructure and urban modeling with a focus on the use of big data and technology. What does all that mean? It means he's a smart guy talking about transportation a lot. And I wanted to talk more about his article and the cul-de-sac in general, so I invited Dr. Welsh all the way from New Zealand to be here on the show. Doctor, thanks so much for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So first up, I noticed you don't have a New Zealand accent. Nope, I'm an American, uh, so I'm imported to New Zealand, but uh, we have a lot of the same transportation issues here that we do in the States, uh, so it's it's easy knowledge to transfer. Excellent. Well, well I've talked to people from all over the world, uh, never yet somebody from New Zealand, and, and when I first start the conversation, I always like to ask how the driving styles compare between the place they are in, in the, when they were in the United States to the place they are now. So, Tim, you've lived in many places in the U.S. Compare the commuting and driving styles from here to where you are now. Sure. You know, they're remarkably similar. People have the same complaints. We have a lot of traffic here. Commutes are just as terrible in New Zealand as they are in the States. Uh, in fact, I was just looking at some numbers recently in, in Colorado. Uh, there's 919 cars per 1,000 people. In New Zealand, there's 900 cars per 1,000 people. So we have just as many cars crammed on just as many roads that are clogged in in the morning, in the afternoon. Uh, and we always wish we had more public transportation and more bike and walking facilities. So uh, remarkably similar. And, and you have remarkable and spectacular mountains, as we do here in Colorado as well. Yeah, there's parts of New Zealand that uh, if you didn't know where you were, you might think you are in Denver or somewhere close by. Oh, neat. Uh, well, and I understand the roads there, though, what, they're a little bit more narrow and winding than than most of the ones here, and sometimes they might be steeper than you expect, right? Certainly. Yeah, it's taken some getting used to. Uh, there's certainly, we have what we call highways, and I'm using air quotes because <laughs> it's a two-lane road uh, that you fly by at uh, 100 kilometers per hour, which sounds fast. It's about 66 miles per hour. Um, it's still pretty fast for a winding mountain road with a cliff on one side, but that's the highway that gets you from one town to another. Uh, that's a pretty common type of infrastructure. Right. You don't have the same kind of interstates like we do here where you'll have four lanes across or like in Atlanta where you have eight lanes on either side, just cruising (laughs) right through the middle of town. It's not quite that insane. We do have some major highways. Um, and so in the cities, we can see four or five lanes of traffic. But once we get outside of the urban areas, they become very small back roads, really. I also, I also thought it was interesting that, you know, we have a problem, I think, worldwide. There's a problem with cell phone usage and how distracting it is. Uh, and, and interesting there that, that countrywide, you have a law that restricts using your cell phone while you're driving. 
Yeah, so a lot of states in the US also have that. Uh, but yeah, we're trying to reduce distracted driving. So road deaths, we cutely call them the road toll. Uh, but it's it's really a lot of road deaths. Um, and so one of the measures that we try to do is uh, keep people from looking at their phones. Uh, there's also a lot of distractions inside the car too. Those more electronics get onto the dashboard and things like that. We have a lot of Teslas here with big huge screens that people tend to get distracted by. So um, cell phones are one component, but there's a lot of distracted driving. Right. And another thing I noticed when I was looking at the uh, Google Earth view and, and looking at some of the streets there in Auckland, that you have a lot more colors painted on the roadways there, like the green bus lanes, some of the crosswalks are painted in red. I've always been an advocate for distinctive crosswalks to draw attention to them, but are Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices, it unfortunately limits that from some of the cities being able to paint them, let's say, 3D or checkerboard, easier to see for the drivers. Yeah, I mean, anything that will kind of distract from or take away from uh, just kind of cruising down the road and seeing the same type of infrastructure, the same colors um, is a good thing. Uh, we have a little bit more of that. Uh, we could always use more. I like the 3D uh, painted crosswalks that make you think you're coming up against some bollards or something like that. Um, but certainly it's a problem, an engineering problem in the U.S. where we kind of can only do certain things at every crosswalk. Uh, and that, you know, unfortunately leads to higher numbers of incidents with cars and pedestrians and cyclists um, when there's not that barrier. But really paint is just one small piece of, of the infrastructure puzzle. Uh, we really do need everywhere, not just in New Zealand, more protection, uh, physical barriers between cars and vulnerable road users. Uh, speaking of the United States, as I'm speaking with Dr. Timothy Welch, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Auckland, uh, one, uh, your, your education background took you from Washington State to Florida State to Canada to Detroit, my hometown, and, and to Maryland. So why many so many schools and so many degrees? Um, yeah, a little indecisive initially, but... Um, yeah, I studied business at, in Washington State University, uh, and then I went to get a law degree. I was living in Detroit. Uh, and as I was there, I was living in the center of Detroit. So not, you know, not eight mile, not 10 mile beyond, but right in the center of Detroit. Um, and while I was there in 2004, the very last supermarket in the entire city, I think, what is it, 157 square miles of city, the last supermarket closed. And so if you wanted to be able to get groceries in Detroit, you had to, and you didn't have a car, you had to get on a bus, go out to the county line, get off the bus, get on the other bus for that county, pay the additional fare, get your groceries and make that return trip. Uh, and I got really interested in the idea of transportation and how it serves the public or doesn't serve people um, and equity concerns around it. And so I went on to get a master's in urban planning, a Ph.D., and, and that kind of stuck finally. Yeah, because that people mover thing that is in downtown Detroit really is, is, is pretty lame. It's, <laughs> it's not that great. No, it's a tourist vehicle. It goes around in a circle. I've ridden it a few times, and it's nice, but um, it really doesn't get you anywhere now. Kind, of, kind of like the same way that that silly tram in uh, Las Vegas that goes either between the Mandalay Bay and, what, Excalibur, and I think there's another one a little bit farther north. Yeah, I mean, we have a problem building infrastructure and public public transportation, you know, that uh, doesn't necessarily lead anywhere. That's more of a showpiece. Uh, and so we have a lot of those instances around the world.
My, my guest is Dr. Timothy Welsh, Senior Lecturer, Urban Planning at the University of Auckland. You can find him on Twitter at Tim F. Welch. And we'll get to your article. It's titled Road to Nowhere, Why the Suburban Cul-de-Sac is an Urban Planning Dead End. And I have a link to that uh, article in the description of the show right now. And, and you start with, with this sentence. You say the cul-de-sac is a suburban trap. It's virtually useless as a road. Is that your main dislike of the cul-de-sac? No, I have a long list, but, <laughs> okay. um, and it's hard to sort out. You know, it's like picking your favorite child. It's hard to sort out which one uh, you don't like the most in terms of cul-de-sacs, not children, right. of course. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things is we have this infrastructure and it's used by a few cars and delivery vehicles and things like that, but it really doesn't play the role that streets were really developed for. They were originally developed for a lot of different uses. Cars actually came last to the picture. It was really people on foot, um, on bike, in trams. On horses, more like, really, that's what it was. It was people on horses and wagons and and on foot. That's right, that's right. And then, uh, you know, in the 1920s and and beyond, uh, cars and car associations started to push people away from the center of the road onto the sides. Um, and they became just car space, essentially. And as a result, um, you know, there's less and less safe spaces for everyone else. Uh, and if you're in a cul-de-sac, really, there's, uh, you know, pedestrian planning and cycling and public transportation are the very last things that are used on those roads. It's mostly just space for cars. Well, even in the old West days, didn't as soon as you had a, a, a space in front of buildings, if you look at any old town, especially here in the West, when they were developed with uh, wider streets so the horses could go through and the wagons could go through, they were really pushing as well people outside of the uh, on the outside of the streets as well. So really any kind of more convenient transportation, whether it was a car or a wagon, would push people out to the side. That's true. I mean, we went through a few different transportation revolutions, um, but I think... With the the ubiquity of the horse uh, is a little overplayed in kind of our romanticized ideas of the past in movies and things like that. Horses were really expensive if you lived in a town um, and you didn't necessarily have space to house a horse or to feed the horse constantly and things like that. So they were used mostly for moving goods uh, and people were moved either in horse pulled trams or moved by foot. It wasn't as common to have a horse. So people really still owned the streets. Uh, until cars became much more affordable and had much more advocacy around them. Uh, There are residents like me who used to live in a cul-de-sac, and I liked it, uh, one, because it is just the residents who are driving in there. It's it's safer for kids. We were looking, when we had to move to a new house, looking for a cul-de-sac area because uh, I wanted my kids to be able to play in, in the street and not have the traffic issue. So it, it's only the neighbors that, that drive in there. Uh, it was a gathering spot. You said this in your article. They are the antithesis of connectivity. Uh, I would d- disagree in this way. I, I was never more connected to my neighbors than when I lived in a cul-de-sac. That we would set up a tent for Fourth of July. We'd have other events. We'd have cookouts. I, I was. I'm never. I was never as as. And even even today, I, I still am connected to those people in that cul-de-sac way more than I am on on my current road that that people are driving on. Yeah, I mean, a few things there. So certainly, everybody falls on one end or the other of the spectrum. Even in my own house, my wife uh, prefers cul-de-sacs, and so <laughs> we always have some debates. 
around that idea. Uh, and for the very same reasons that you're bringing up is this idea of connectivity and closeness and kids playing outside. The fact that kids can't play outside on a normal street in a normal grid pattern is an indication that our cities and our streets are kind of broken in a way. Uh, if you go back 40, 50 years ago, kids could play in the streets, cars weren't flying down the road, uh, and there was that space to play and that safe feeling. It's just when we started to bulk up on the number of cars we have, we widened our streets, we made huge thoroughfares uh, that they became noisy and dangerous places to be. Uh, and so we had to kind of create, in a sense, these refuges from uh, this fast-moving, loud, dangerous traffic uh, but what we did was we isolated ourselves away from the diversity of the city. And so if you talk to anybody who's a big into urban planning, they'll bring up Jane Jacobs. Uh, so I'll bring her up too. And it's kind of this idea of uh, intermixing or urbanization where you run into people of different cultures, of different viewpoints, uh, and that enriches the city as a whole. Often, if we're in a cul-de-sac, we're around people that are of a similar income distribution, of a similar skin color, of a similar ethnicity that we are. That we are, um, and we may be close to them, but we're missing out on a lot of the opportunity to, for diversity and new interactions. Um, and so, there's some of that isolation. There's there's a component of knowing your neighbors, but there's also a larger socialize social isolation that can occur in a very deep cul-de-sac. Uh, so that can be a problem as well. But it is available. It, it is the, the cultural mixing, like you say, it is available in urban areas where you do have more of a mix. It is less, as you said, out in a suburban area where incomes change and where and in the tribal nature of humans, they tend to like to hang out with people of their own, whether it's race or whether it's their ethnicity or whether it's their belief system, you 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 know that you've seen studies on that, because people are 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 really tribal when you when you come come down to it, and so they are going to gather in those ways. So, but there are available spaces like that, whether it is in the suburbs or whether it's in a downtown area. Yeah, people may gather that way, but um, you know the kind of the evidence suggests that when people are um, provided the opportunity to interact with people of different cultures and things like that, that they are enriched, that they do like that, um, that kind of intermixing. But oftentimes the way we build our suburbs, there isn't that opportunity. So it's kind of a self-selecting process and you, you become isolated as a result of that. But I had an Italian built. family that was living the uh, two doors down and there was a family from India that was three doors down. And there was a African American family that was also in my neighborhood. So it, it was diverse. It's not like it was just all uh, white people that were in this cul-de-sac. So we we had a diverse cul-de-sac. It's it's just um, you know. And so I, I I don't know. I don't necessarily believe that it's only one race and it only keeps cer certain people out. No, certainly not. Um, it's not completely that way. But what you'll see is that cul-de-sac subdivisions are traditionally more uniform in ethnicity and in income. It's not the rule. It, there can be more diversity, but they tend to be less diverse than inner cities and inner su city suburbs. Yeah, true. Uh, my guest is Dr. Timothy Welch. He's a senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Auckland. Y you mentioned also uh, just a minute ago about uh, people, uh, you know, cars flying down uh, the roadway. Well, that's 
more behavior than the actual problem with the vehicle itself. That's a behavior issue, and I think that could be controlled with, uh, you know, there are traffic control devices, whether it's berms, whether it's a curvier road, whether it's, um, uh, you know, narrower feeling roads, right? There are these natural ways to slow traffic down, and there's obviously enforcement at the same time. Um, speed humps or speed bumps, you know, those sort of things. I mean, there's natural ways to slow things down. So isn't it more of a factor of the behavior of the driver needs to be changed more so than the actual vehicle? Yeah, and I wouldn't even say it's necessarily behavior. It's more the design itself. So roads have over time become wider um, and accommodated much higher speeds. So most roads now are built to accommodate a minimum of 50 miles per hour, even if the speed is 35. Uh, they're engineered to accommodate much higher speeds. And that was the idea is to reduce the likelihood of a crash or an incident. Uh, but the result is it encourages people to drive much faster. Um, and we set our speed limits based on uh, something called the 85% rule, which is we observe how fast people will drive on a road. And then we set it based on how fast the 85th percent of those drivers go. So we're letting people kind of dictate how fast a road should go uh, and designing to that spec. The problem is that when we move this kind of design out into the suburbs and a cul-de-sac, and we have these wide roads with very few intersections, there's no opportunity or requirement for people to start to slow down. And so you're on these curvilinear roads that don't have great sight lines that are designed for at least 50 mile an hour traffic and nothing to slow them down. And you get people who speed much faster um, at a much higher rate. Uh, and then you have kids in the road and cars backing up. And that's why some of the evidence suggests that a fatal accident or fatal crash is about 270% more likely in a cul-de-sac than it is in a traditional suburban neighborhood. Yeah, in the piece, you mentioned that line of sight in these developments can limit the visibility of these bike riders, pedestrians, especially, as you said, in the higher speeds. But speeding is really a problem everywhere. It's it's a it's a problem in my neighborhood street. It's a problem in, in all streets without any kind of enforcement or other kind of traffic control uh, devices to help slow the traffic down. Um, and, and, and actually, to be honest, I have degraded into vigilante justice at times, <laughs> trying to slow down the traffic right outside my my street. Sometimes with some negative interactions with with my neighbors. But, but the advantage of a cul-de-sac is that since it is basically a dead end, drivers passing through, they're not going to use them. They're not going to be driving through there. They're not going to want to get in a cul-de-sac. They can't speed in a cul-de-sac because it is just a dead end curve. It actually is more of a, a refuge and a protected area than anything else. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems that way and because there is less through traffic. Uh, but what also happens is it requires more driving. So people who live in a cul-de-sac typically will have to drive most places unless there's some pedestrian cut-throughs or bike cut-throughs to other things. And typically, you'll have to drive to a convenience store. You'll have to drive to a grocery store. You'll have to drive to school. That encourages a much higher rate of driving than you would if you lived in a more grid-like pattern. And then every delivery you get, right? So now we have Amazon all the time. And so every Amazon driver has to snake through every road of the cul-de-sac to deliver maybe one package. That means there's significantly more driving in that neighborhood. And these deliveries are going much faster also, maybe on unfamiliar roads. So it just encourages a significantly more, a higher number of car trips than we would in other designs. So while we're kind of shifting away from just random through traffic, we're all also requiring the people that do live there to drive 
a lot more. Because I think the average cul-de-sac, the the road really isn't that long. Maybe a couple of hundred feet. It's not. It, it, there could be some that that wind a little bit longer than that, and then go to a dead end. And, and you say, as you said in the piece, the the very nature of these cul-de-sacs require a car for transportation. But let's, for argument's sake, say where there is a current cul-de-sac, it was magically turned into a straight road. That that person, those homes those families are, are are still just as isolated from public transportation as they were before the road was turned straight, when it was still a cul-de-sac. And, and maybe they like it that way. Yeah, maybe they like it that way. I mean, people obviously, they're not, nobody's being forced to live in a cul-de-sac. Uh, so there's some personal preference there. Uh, part of it is also availability. I mean, most cul-de-sacs, uh, most suburban areas are built as cul-de-sacs anyway. So if you want this kind of affordable house with a yard, um, that's the style of development that you're going to be looking at uh, by necessity. But straining a road is just the one piece, right? What we're also doing is making a lot of connections and making smaller block sizes. And this is something we call perme- permeability, which is the ability to cross through a neighborhood and access certain things. With a cul-de-sac, you have to wind around, even if you're on foot, wind around those roads until you find that connection to school or the convenience store or grocery store, something like that, uh, with a more permeable neighborhood where there are lots of intersections. You can cut through and, you know, in one mile um, walk, you can reach a lot more things, whether it's a friend's house or um, your job or anything else uh, in that one mile versus the one mile it might take you to snake around a cul-de-sac and down a main road uh, to something. That's if you're fortunate enough to be able to live where you work. I I have to, <laughs> I mean not everybody can can do that and and some with the nature of work as it is now a lot of younger people especially they'll be at a place for six months and then they'll be at another place for six they they they're just transient almost in their work habits where they will jump around from job to job but they're not going to jump around from apartment to apartment or home to home that quickly. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there used to be a time when we talked about what we call location optimization, where you would kind of decide where's the best place to live based on my job. And people used to keep their job for their whole life, and then they'd have a pension and they retire. Uh, but that's just not an option anymore. People have to move around. There's a lot more mobility. Uh, but the problem then is that you really do have to have one or two or three cars per household to accommodate everybody and their different locations where they're working or going to school. Um, and and that's why we have a situation where almost every there's a car for almost every person, you know, in Colorado, in New Zealand, everywhere else. Yeah. Uh, my guest is Dr. Timothy Welch. He's a senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Auckland, also a member of the New Zealand Transportation Research Board. Uh, you, you've spoken many times about transit, alternate modes of travel rather than vehicles. And, and you did say in an interview last summer that the goal of an urbanist is to make alternate uh, alternative modes of travel so attractive that a person will want to get out of their car and leave it behind. You also said, we're not trying to rip that steering wheel out of your hand, but rather make it possible to use another mode if that's what you'd like to do. You saying that implies that you do believe that commuters ultimately have a choice, but I've talked to many other urbanists who, right here on this program who, who do want to rip the steering wheel out of people's hands and force them into a mode of transportation that they think is best. How do we balance all of these opinions. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there we get that kind of um, us versus them mentality often, uh, and it makes really good sound clips and things like that, um, and great Twitter feeds. But the reality is that there are people who will have to drive. I mean, there's people who are low mobility that really can't walk or ride a bike or have no access to public transportation, and. So there is a group of people that will always need access to a vehicle and some people who absolutely have no desire to walk or bike or take public transportation. Uh, the goal for a transportation planner like myself is really to make available a variety of modes so people can do that. And the problem is what we do is we paint a lane down a highway and wonder why there aren't any bikes on it. Uh, it's terrifying for a mother and her kids or a family or anybody else to go down and have a, you know, a two ton speeding uh, car next to them as they try to get to school. So making that infrastructure safe and attractive to a lot of people is one way to provide alternatives. I mean, we're basically in what we call a climate emergency right now. And transportation, like in Colorado, is about 30% of those GHG emissions. And on-road, so vehicle emissions, are a significant portion of that. And so if we can just move at least a few people away from the car, willingly, usually, um, to public transportation, to a bike, to walking, uh, then we can make some major strides in, in achieving climate goals and also just making cities more pleasant altogether. But I think there's a difference, too, between the central urban area of, let's say, a downtown Denver or downtown Nashville or Cincinnati, where there are a lot of people that like to live in the downtown core. But then there's also a lot of people who like to live outside the core who don't mind driving around a little bit. But you can still have a mix of the two. So if the people don't want to own a car, they still can get around and get around fairly easily in all these major cities. It's just the folks that are in the outside areas that do need the vehicle. And if they want to, that shouldn't really be a problem for them, right? No, it shouldn't be a problem. But there is a trade-off. So people don't live away from work and live away from school and shopping uh, necessarily by design. They do it because it's what's affordable. So the farther away from the city center you get, the cheaper it gets. You know, that old adage that you drive until you can buy. Um, and as a result, we tend to see isolation away from all the things you can do other than just live in your house. And we've had some movements over the last few years to develop things like 15-minute neighborhoods where we start to build in more infrastructure and more opportunities for people so that they can walk or bike in 15 minutes to these things uh, rather than being forced to drive everywhere. Certainly there are people who like to drive and, and that's totally fine, but there are, is a pretty significant portion of people that live in predominantly residential areas that would take other modes or go to places locally if they're provided that opportunity. They just don't have that access. Yeah. And, and even though the people that do have access that I've talked to that might be you know, almost right outside their door, they're just not that interested in, in getting on a bus with a whole bunch of other people where they have to sit there quietly because they can't listen to their music or their talk radio or their sports radio in the car and they can't turn up the heat because the, and, and the, bu the bus is stopping all the time and the doors are opening and then it's cold uh, because it's Colorado and it's wintertime and, and so it, it gets cold in there uh, or they don't want to get on a train that has to do all these different stops and then walk to the next place. It's just there's a lot of times where it's just more convenient for them, a lot of people, just to take a car. Uh, yeah, there are some people who live pretty far away where there's the only option really is to drive, and that is the most convenient option. But if 
we really examined the opportunity for public transportation objectively. Uh, there's a number of trade-offs. Yeah, I mean, we sure you can't listen to your radio, but that's why we have, you know, radios and, and podcasts and things like that and headphones now. You can listen to anything you want, read any book you want, and you don't have to worry about driving. Uh, so that's that's a big benefit. They're safer. Uh, the number of car crashes, if you look at car crashes, let's say um, in, in Colorado, again, you know, you're at the high now over 700 road deaths this uh, last year, which is the highest since 1981. Uh, compare that to the number of people that died on public transportation, which is basically zero, right? So the likelihood of being in a, uh, injured or killed in a car crash is virtually zero for public transportation. The cost to maintain to buy a car, which the average now in the U.S. is pushing $45,000 and to maintain a car, which is a huge cost and pay for insurance and to pay for gas. Um, all of those things added up public transportation, while maybe slightly less convenient in terms of you have to deal with other humans and um, you have to wait outside for a few minutes. Uh, the cost, the economics of it is so much better. Um, that but the cost, we... of the, the cost of public transportation to the public is extremely high, especially when it comes to trains. Yeah, I mean, you could you could view it that way, right? So it's funded a different way. You pay a little bit with your fare. Some comes in from advertising, and then a lot comes in from state and federal government to build. Most up comes that rail in from system. state and federal government. The advertising is very small, and I know around yeah. here the fare box collection is maybe fifteen percent of the fares. Yeah, they range from about 15 to 20% of the fares. And that's because we view it as a public good. I mean, how much of the road is financed by other things, right? So 90% of all road infrastructure is financed by the federal government. Uh, and then you pay for maintenance with your gas tax and other things like that, which barely rises. I mean, the federal gas tax hasn't gone up since 1991. So, I mean, there's it hasn't kept up even remotely with with inflation. So we put a ton of money into road infrastructure uh, and then bulk at uh, some money in public transportation, but it's much more efficient. It's better for the environment. It's it's better for people's pocketbooks if we put more money into the public transportation. But we don't just you don't think do that still, calculus. But also, don't you think that we would still need roads? I mean, you still need uh, the ability for a fire truck or an ambulance to get to my house. You still need that, that that infrastructure in place. So let's say we took all or most of the cars off the roads right now. You still need most of that infrastructure to get to people so they can either get out, use a scooter, use a bus or whatever. You still need that available infrastructure so that cost is still there. Yeah, we, we basically have saddled um, ourselves and future generations with a massive road bill going forward. I mean, a huge portion of all funding uh, from now until the foreseeable future um, is just cut away instantly and given to just maintaining local, state, and federal roads. Uh, so what we can salvage from that maintenance goes into building new roads or public transportation. It's just a small sliver of the price because we built up so much infrastructure. We could live on less infrastructure technically, and if we had fewer people on the roads, we would have to maintain them a lot less. But use that emergency vehicle is a good issue because if you live in 
in a suburban cul-de-sac that's far away from the city center uh, that's a, down a winding road, uh, an emergency vehicle is going to have much more difficult time getting to you uh, in a reasonable amount of time if your house is on fire or you have a medical emergency than if you lived in a traditional neighborhood that's well connected on a grid. Uh, so even that that concern that we've built these roads that are almost impossible to get to um, create a number of issues um, and, and emergency vehicles happen to be one of those. Uh, maybe we should give heart tests to people that if they're going to live in a cul-de-sac. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> my, my guest is Dr. Timothy Welch. He's a senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Auckland. What is what do you think about this idea to and you mentioned it earlier on to separate vehicles and bikes and pedestrians and it might be time to put a bike only highway in a city where we have something similar to that in denver where along the cherry creek bike path it's just for bikes and pedestrians mostly it's just bikes but they're separated uh totally separated from vehicles and so that way there isn't the conflict point between the two it's safer for the people in the car it's safer for the people on the bikes and they can both get to their destinations without much of a hassle yeah, absolutely. I'm totally in favor of bikes having their own infrastructure. I mean, people will balk it, of course, so who's going to pay for it? And um, why do bikes get their own route? Nobody's using it or whatever else. There's a million arguments. Uh, but totally separating bikes from cars is great for a number of reasons, basically noise and the likelihood of a crash and pollution. Um, all sorts of exposure goes down. Uh, it's been done in other countries. The Netherlands is famous for it. Uh, for building this separate infrastructure. The things that have to be done, though, is they can't just be tourist paths. They actually have to connect to places that people want to go and people live. Uh, and then they have to be connected, right? They have to create a network. We just It's not good enough to have two miles of a nice bike path and then it just ends there. Uh, or you have to load up your bike on the back of your Jeep or whatever <laughs> and drive to the the bike path and take that for a little while and drive back home. Uh, they really have to go somewhere and serve a purpose. You, you also wrote an article uh, that I was reading, and it was talking about how to get suburbanites out of their cars, and you mentioned scooters would help with that first mile, last mile problem that everybody's trying to solve, especially from commuters to get from their home to, let's say, a transit center. It, it could, could it be, though, that there are people who just don't want to do something like that they, they're they not able to get on a scooter they just i mean it's just maybe not that practical i i like riding a scooter my my kids have their own personal scooter that they like driving around the neighborhood but there's there's a lot of folks my my in-laws are never going to get on a scooter <laughs> yeah of course um and neither would mine but um, I think it just goes back to providing those opportunities, right? So there are a lot of people that live in suburbs that go to a suburban rail station. It's a project we're working on here in Auckland uh, that just don't have access to, let's say, a shared or rented scooter or e-bike um, or a safe place to park it if they were to ride it to a train station. So they use park and ride and it fills up inevitably and they circle around uh, and they get frustrated. So there are a group of people, a significant group, we think, that would use alternative modes rather than driving to a rail station or bus station um, if they were presented that opportunity. We just don't give people in the suburbs that opportunity as often. So presented that opportunity, there would be a significant amount of people who might use it. And as a result, it would reduce the demand for park and ride and congestion on roads. Um, and you wouldn't 
require anybody to use those those modes of transportation, but you give them the opportunity. Uh, and if they are able and willing, um, that helps everybody. Uh, I know more often than not, you like to ride your bike to work. Do, do you uh, and your wife own a car? Uh, we do have a car. Yeah. And it's kind of, uh, you know, in a lot of cities, Auckland is no exemption. A car is really required if you want to go outside the city limits. Uh, sometimes even if you want to cross the city, uh, that's how we've built our cities is you just have to get in a car. We prefer to, uh, we have a cargo bike, so we ride our kids to school every day. Um, and even in the rain, we have rain covers and things like that. Uh, but if we want to go farther afield where public transportation doesn't go um, and our bikes just can't make it, then, then yeah, we'll, we'll drive. Um, and I know a lot of people do that. So we kind of are in what this, what we call a low car household where we, we get by with one car. It sits like most cars unused in the driveway. Um, I mean, most cars sit unused or parked 95% of their lives. And ours is probably closer to 98%. Uh, but we certainly have one and use it occasionally. Do your kids like riding in that little, uh, you know, uh, bucket or, or tram or whatever, <laughs> like you said, your, your little wagon <laughs> yeah. there going to school? I mean, do they like it when they say, hey, come on, dad, I, I really just want to ride to school in the car? <laughs> Uh, they will fight me to the nail to get in the car, but <laughs> not in the bike. Yeah. So they, they love getting in the bike. Uh, they scramble to it. If we say we have to drive somewhere, they complain about it. Kids love the idea that they can sit in the front of a bike or the back of a bike close to the road. They can see the neighborhood as it goes by. As a result, my kids know where everything is. They know where their friends live. They know, unfortunately, where the ice cream store is. They know <laughs> if we're going to trick them and say we're going to ice cream, but take them to the dentist. They already know that because they know every street um, and they just can't get that experience from the back of a car. Uh, and so as a result, they're, they're intimately familiar with their neighborhood um, and they, they love getting on the bike. Even on a rainy day, they've got a cover. They're happy to do it. Is there a little part of you when you're out driving and you're away from the city and maybe you're out in the country? Do, do you like it? Do you like driving? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't hate driving. Uh, I don't love it all the time, especially in New Zealand. We drive on the, you know, the left-hand side of the road, and we have those narrow roads that are pretty fast. Um, I mean, I get tired of it really fast, though, to be honest. Um, you know, there's a certain feeling when you're on a bike, you're getting exercise, you're whatever. I usually will um, listen to some a podcast or something as well, at least in one ear. Um, and so, I mean, I, it's hard to replace that kind of feeling that you're on a bike with a car in an isolated area. Uh, but it is certainly nice to be able to drive somewhere to experience something new. Um, but definitely a preference towards being on two wheels. Right. Uh, I believe, and I, I know you've talked about this too, is I believe that the next step in the way uh, the folks who are really anti-car, the advocates there, are going to try to move cities to fewer cars is to try to eliminate parking spaces and the avail availability of parking, especially in downtown areas. And, and I know you're in, in favor of fewer free street parking spaces and in favor of, of more paid parking spaces to reduce driving. Do you believe that that parking is going to be the next, for lack of a better term, the next front on the war against cars? Um, yeah, I mean, the the war against cars is kind of a cute name for uh, nobody's really at war with cars, but the idea that we can reduce our prioritization of vehicles and prioritize a lot of other modes um, instead of giving so much of our cities away to the car. 
and I think that's an important movement. Uh, the the idea that parking has been a wasted space and is really inefficient, especially in an urban area, has been around for years and years. Donald Shoup, uh, you know, an emeritus professor, now wrote uh, the high price of or the high cost of free parking um, years and years ago. Uh, talking about all the ways in which parking wastes space, but I mean it's it's particularly acute in in cities like Auckland here, where we have huge areas of the city that are just open surface parking that are either free or complete or you know pretty cheap, and at the same time we're complaining that we don't have enough housing and other um, buildings and things like that, uh, where all of this space could be used to develop residences um, where they could be used to, to develop mixed use, but we've given it away to the car. Um, and then we have, you know, free or cheap on-street parking, and that creates a number of problems. We don't have space to prioritize buses. We don't have space for pedestrians or cyclists. Um, and then when the parking spaces are most in demand because they're underpriced and so there's high demand for them, people will circle around or cruise the neighborhood um, or the block looking for a parking spot on the road, creating more congestion, more emissions. Uh, so they're really inefficient. Uh, there's much better ways to get people in and out of the city than just parking a car that you drove by yourself into it. Well, what about having a certain avenues or certain streets that are free of parking? There are some of those that are in major metropolitan areas, and then maybe in more of a neighborhood area that you allow some of the street parking to happen. Uh, that way you can have a mix of the two where you can still move things around. You could still have room for a bike path. So you'll still have room for a maybe a shared bike and a pedestrian slash bus uh, lane. Uh, but you also have the availability to have some people park a car if they need to have one where they have a uh, an apartment with, with one car. Like you do, like yeah. you guys do, you know? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, you could definitely reduce parking on city streets. I mean, if you look, I think it's it's funny if you just kind of take a walk outside and you start to look around and you just see how cars are strewn on every street, on every corner. Uh, and just in your mind, replace all those cars with someone's used old couch or a refrigerator or something like that. It would be crazy if we just threw things around like that, but we freely park our cars and take up tons of space. So clearing out parked cars from you know our most expensive valued urban spaces and moving them to more designated locations uh, would be a good first step. As cities like London, uh, like Paris, are making huge movements in prioritizing people on foot and bike and public transportation uh, simply by pedestrianizing some major roads. So only people on foot or in a public transportation vehicle can get to them. Shopping goes way up uh, as a result, even though you can't drive there, people, most people walk to a local shop anyway, or take public transportation or bike. Um, and, and people, you know, are generally more happy when they're out of their car walking around, uh, even if that means they had to park a little farther away and, and take a bit of a hike. You, you've been in enough colleges to know that a, a couch on the street, the only good use of a couch in the street is to light it on fire. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and a, a dumpster fire is yeah. a good analogy for the way we've planned a lot of our cities in the last 
several decades uh, and so kind of this idea of of making them more user friendly um is a way of, of backing away from some of the policies we've had of the last decades i could imagine a, a, there's a day where in let's say a downtown atlanta or uh baltimore or wherever you want to talk about that, that you'll have a downtown core and that Basically, you're going to only allow, and I think London has that uh, congestion. I know Manhattan is going to do a, where you can only have certain vehicles inside uh, Manhattan. Or basically, you're going to turn it off to any vehicles, except maybe deliveries and maybe emergency vehicles, that sort of thing. Eliminate all parking together, uh, altogether, and, and just make it a... Uh, a place where people can only bike or walk or scooter. Is that the way that you could imagine urban cities becoming in the next 15 or 25 or 35 years? Yeah, congestion charge is, I think, a way that a lot of people, a lot of cities are moving uh, to this idea that you pay a little extra to get into the city. So you can drive into London if you'd like to, you just have to pay for it. And that money is going towards making the roads better. It's going towards providing better public transportation. If you take the bus or a tube in London, you'd be astounded how good that public transportation is and how quickly and efficient it can move when it's not stuck in traffic by behind a bunch of cars, right? Or how fast you can get a package when your Amazon or UPS delivery doesn't have to deal with massive amounts of cars at a traffic light. Uh, so using some of that congestion charge to finance better public transportation, better road systems, um, and reducing the amount of congestion in the city and the amount of emissions uh, is really a win for everybody, including drivers. But what about no cars at all? What about just totally close it off? You can't even pay for it if you have $1,000. We're not going to let you in. It is totally closed, and that's just the way it is. I mean, it sounds, sounds pleasant to me, but I don't think it's very realistic. I don't think there's a city in the world that either would want to do that or necessarily could. I mean, there's a certain threshold of driving that has to occur just to efficiently move people around. Um, not everything can be done, unfortunately, by bike um, or public transportation. And there is some driving that will probably occur. Um, so I don't think we cut everything off. I think that's the extreme view where people say, this is what's going to happen. This is what people want. People just want fewer cars to contend with um, in a reasonable way and more opportunities to take other modes. As I'm speaking to Dr. Timothy Welch, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Auckland, uh, is one of that is one of those ways maybe with autonomous cars, and uh, we always hear about the future with uh, autonomous taxis and Ubers and Lyfts and that sort of thing, so we only have a few of those driving around taking people from place to place rather than us owning our own vehicle. Well, to be honest, we will never see the day where every car is autonomous. And I doubt we'll ever see the day where there's a significant portion of cars on the road that are autonomous. We've been promised autonomous cars since 1920. Um, and it's gone on and on and on. And what happens is auto manufacturers just kick the can farther down the road and promise it's coming and coming. And even if you look at Tesla, the self-driving mode uh, is a bunch of cameras that are sometimes correct and sometimes not correct. Uh, we have LiDAR that can get more accuracy. But we'll never have a situation where there are so many cars that are autonomous that you can just get in and go anywhere you want. I think it's a way that we kind of push away doing all the other things like building protected bike lanes and funding public transportation. Um, and even if we had autonomous cars, say that did come true, I, that's not necessarily a city I would want to live in where you have cars going so fast, you don't need intersections, they program themselves around each other, things like that. 
um, it really kind of, to me, seems like a hellscape where it's all just cars <laughs> all the time. I'd rather be able to get around and walk around my city or bike around my city or take public transportation um, and not have a car. But what I do envision is a much more shared model. It's crazy to me that we buy a $40,000 machine and let it sit in our driveway or at work parked, like I said, 95% of the time. Um, why not that 95% of the time someone else uses the car and you pay just a fraction of it. We don't need the car while we're sleeping. We don't need the car while we're at work. So why shouldn't someone else be using it more efficiently and we just pay a little piece of that? So shared models where you have to unfortunately do the driving, I don't think they'll be autonomous. Um, I think that's the future of, of automobiles in the city, personally. Uh, I'm, I'm a little stunned because you are the most pessimistic person I have talked to in in years and years about the future of autonomy and autonomous cars. It's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I just don't see it. I mean, we've been testing it for decades and there's just not solid evidence that, that they're really going to be functional. And even if, let's say, we had 10% of the cars on the road autonomous, that's still 90% of human error on the road. Until it's 100% autonomous, we can't get rid of crashes and the possibility of, of um, you know, human error taking a huge human toll. And then you have machines that are basically deciding who to prioritize. So you get in a car and, you know, it's the old tr tram um, scenario where the car has to decide, should I run over this group of school children <laughs> walking to school or protect the person in the car? Right. Uh, do we want to turn that decision making over to vehicles? Um, or do we want cars moving so fast through the road because they're programmed to swerve around everything that it's impossible to cross the road or that pedestrians and cyclists have to wear all this machinery so they can communicate with cars like Ford, you know, has an app now that they want pedestrians to use so that the Ford people in a Ford will be notified before they run somebody over. It's, it's ludicrous to think that um, technology is going to transform the city. It's inevitably going to make it less livable, in my opinion. I have a magic word for you. Gondolas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a ski town. I thought Denver's a perfect yeah. place for that because you got each individual gondola sponsored by each of the different ski resorts. You could have Vail, Beaver Creek, Steamboat Springs, Aspen, you could have them all and they're just sailing across the uh, uh <laughs> all, all in the air right there in, in a downtown area, not just here, but it could be anywhere. Yeah, I mean they're not they're not on like a pe people mover though, right. right? I mean there there are some use cases with some ridiculous terrain where people have and do use gondolas and they can accommodate, you know, 40 people or something in a car, uh, but they're more prone to breakdowns and weather and things like that. I don't, I don't know that raising above the traffic is really the solution for us. I mean, it's been tried. The problem is existent in the streets and we need to solve that problem. We can't just keep going. That's like the idea that we'll have flying cars, right? We're just going to create traffic in the air too. <laughs> it's going to be everywhere. Yeah, exactly. It will be. Well, it, I, it's been a fascinating conversation. What else are you working on? What's your next big thing? What are you teaching your students here of what transportation, what the light, what, what their life is going to look like in the next 25 years? I mean, it's hard to know what things will look like in the future. Um, so for us, we just focus on the now, and that's usually how do you get your kids to stay active? Um, how do you get them to engage with the city? Um, and so we focus on on learning to ride our bikes. So our kids were riding their bikes when they were two years old. Um, we advocate a lot so that they feel safer on the roads and they're less likely to be run over by a car. 
Um, and we're working a lot on getting more micromobility in the city. So as I mentioned, moving people in the suburbs, giving them the opportunity to use scooters and e-bikes, a place to ride, um, and connections to the city. And that's really important for us is, is bringing in everybody, even on the fringe of the city, into that um, alternative modes if they'd like to use them. I think Star Trek had it right. Beaming everybody everywhere. That's right. I mean, maybe that's our future. Yeah. <laughs> we need, yeah, we need, we need sure. to get some beaming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can, we can, I think that's uh, just as realistic as autonomous cars in the future. So sure. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, Dr. Timothy Welch, thank you so much for being here for all your expertise, your knowledge coming on. I, uh, for all the way from New Zealand a day ahead. So I really do appreciate your time. And it was really a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I have all of Dr. Welsh's contact information in the description of this show, as well as all the uh, articles that I mentioned during our conversation. And um, it was really, it's still, all right, I have to tell you this, while, while we were visiting there, I, I have to tell you that that during the start of our conversation, uh, when, I, when I gave him a call there, it, it was one o'clock my time here in Denver, but it was 9 a.m. his time the next day. So, so technically, if you want to think about it this way, I was talking to somebody living in the future. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's so weird to think about that. But yeah, it was one day ahead there in New Zealand than it was where I was. So it's morning there and it's, I guess, uh, early afternoon here. <laughs> it's so, so interesting to think about. Uh, any, anyway, all, all that I information is there in the description of the show, and I'm still really taken back by the whole autonomous um, vehicle discussion and how he says we're never going to live in an auto autonomous world. Every every uh, uh, sci-fi movie and, and TV show, they always have people in, in flying cars and autonomous cars and transports and teleporting and all that stuff, and nobody's basically driving their own stuff. Well, maybe some of them are, uh, but most of them are, are have a world of a future where nobody's driving anywhere. Um, and it's just, it's just interesting. And, and I, I've had similar thoughts about the whole thing that you, you could never, you have to go either all in or you can't go half in with autonomous unless you're going to do it in a closed track because you can't mix human error with computer, uh, uh perfection, if you will. And I know computers aren't perfect, but they're a lot m less human than, than humans are, but, and, and they're never going to be truly perfect with autonomy. Cause I still talk to people who have Teslas, who put it on their autopilot mode, and the car still has a difficult time trying to differentiate certain things because it just doesn't have the, the, the wealth and breadth of knowledge that a human does and can recognize. I mean, really, think about as you're driving down a highway at 60 miles an hour, you can identify the littlest piece of whatever and know that it's not going to be a big deal to you as you drive and that you could just drift a little bit to, the, let's say, the right or the left and so you wouldn't hit it with your tire, right? Uh, you could know that a bag is just flying around or something, a piece of paper is flying around in the air and it's not going to uh, affect your drive. So you just kind of drive right through it. Uh, but a computer might not know that. And, and those all have to be worked out before any autonomy can happen. And I do think it's going to be way down the road and it might not even get down to the, uh, to rural areas, uh, maybe ever, I don't know. Uh, but it, it might be hundred years before we see true autonomy in, uh, in everywhere. You'll see it in bigger areas. You'll see closed off areas first, but 
I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not a futurist, I guess, but I, I did talk to somebody in the future, so I have that going for me. Anyway, uh, thanks again to uh, Dr. Welsh for being here, uh, joining me on the show and, and making himself available uh, when he did. All right, so uh, if you want to contact me, you have all my contact links in the description of the show as well. You can always call the listener hotline at 303-832-0217, and I look forward to seeing you next time. And until next time, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe and as always, happy motoring.